0: I
1: never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. This is Encounter 601, me and you and a dog named Bo. In this episode, we return to the contactees and look at Buck Nelson, one of the most colorful of that very colorful bunch of experiencers. Let's head to Missouri. Missouri. In introducing Buck Nelson, perhaps it's best to let him speak for himself. I will give my readers a brief summary of my life. I was born near Denver, Colorado, April 9, 1895. I've spent most of my life on a farm and large cattle ranches. I only managed to get a sixth grade education at school. I've worked as a top hand on many central western cattle ranches when very young. I've logged and run a sawmill of my own, making both lumber and railroad ties. I have railroaded, worked as a special policeman, farmed, run an auto park, etc. I have traveled in all of our 48 good old states of the USA and many foreign lands. After tiring of it all, I longed for the farm again. I purchased 80 acres in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri, 12 and one half miles from the nearest town, Mountain View, Missouri. Here I farmed some and bought a sawmill and made lumber and railroad ties. After a few years old ailments and age got the best of me and I retired. Lucky to have my Ozark Mountain home. As you will read in my story, the Flying Saucers first appeared over my Ozark Mountain home July 30, 1954. I wrote of the experience to the Springfield, Missouri newspaper. They printed it in their daily paper. As I have no experience as a writer or a lecturer, I intended to drop the whole thing right there and forget it all. Then, Mr. James L. Hill of Seymour, Missouri, Route 2, World War veteran, read the article in the paper. Mr. Hill thought the world should know about my experience and mailed a copy of the paper to flying saucer clubs in the East. I was investigated by several in the East, and later I was called to lecture to the public and tell my story on the stage at halls, churches, and schools. So the world and I are indebted to Mr. James L. Hill. Also George Adamski has done much to help me, and he tells the world that he believes my story. Now I am thankful that my story was not dropped right there and forgotten as I have since had many contacts with spacemen and my trip to space, for which I will ever be thankful. So I must stop here and let my readers read my story. Every bit of it is true. Buck Nelson. So, Buck is a regular sort of guy, really. Working class, uneducated, but clearly skilled. His background reminds me of Truman Bethram, for example. Somewhere, there's room for an academic study on expressions of class in contact deism, and, and ufology in general. The spectrum of, I don't know, performed status or something uh, from those who claim to be highly educated but aren't, like Professor Adamski, all the way to the other end, those like Buck Nelson, who are very steadfast in highlighting their lack of any credentials and any sort of sophistication. It'd be an interesting angle to examine. So Buck, like many contactees, provided some additional testimony from someone who was sort of a character witness, who could vouch for his sincerity and veracity. And for Buck, it was a woman named Fanny Lowry of Clarkston, Michigan. She had a fairly high opinion of Buck's experiences and the ideas he would bring back from the spacemen, comparing him to John the Baptist in the sense of being the forerunner of a great messenger or prophet. Fanny also drops some government cover-up action on us, claiming, quote, "...some Air Force officials have been to see him so many times that they know him fairly well," but they are not allowed to talk about his experiences very much, if at all, end quote. The Lowry's would live in Clarkston until at least the early 1980s and would be involved with the saucer scene in the greater Detroit area, including hosting Buck for a speaking gig there in 1956. Now, on to Buck's one and only book, My Trip to Mars, the Moon, and Venus. He only released the one book, and it's fairly short, about 50 pages, so we can take some time and go through it. And the first paragraph of it is short and sort of folksy enough that you need to experience it for yourselves. The first part of my story started on July 30th, 1954. I was listening to my radio at my home at four o'clock in the afternoon when it began to go crazy wild. My dog too sat up and started barking and my pony outside began to raise all kinds of cane. I went outside to see what the animals were doing. So Buck heads outside and sees a huge thing He uses the word thing, he says, because he'd never heard the term flying saucer before. He tries to take pictures of the objects, but inevitably, upon being developed, the photos were indistinct. He runs back into the house, gets a flashlight, and tries to signal the thing to come in for a landing. It doesn't, and instead of landing, one of the craft zaps Buck with, in his words, quote, some kind of a ray, hotter and brighter than the sun, end quote. He was knocked down. And he stayed down until the craft left. And when the craft was gone, he got up and realized that the lumbago in his back and the neuritis in his side had vanished. He no longer needed glasses. The flying saucer had healed Buck of the aches and pains and annoyances of aging. Pretty uh, pretty handy. About half a year later, February 1955, the craft returned. They circled Buck's house and, over what Nelson thought must be a public address system of some kind, asked if he was friendly because they wanted to land on Buck's property. They did not land this time and talked only for a few minutes. They bid me goodbye and said, we'll see you soon. That may be the most underwhelming alien contact ever. Buck doesn't even tell us what answer he gave to the alien's question of whether it was safe to land. Luckily for Buck and for us, that answer must have been affirmative or yes, I'm safe, because they came back. um, Luckily for us and for generations of Saucer fans to come. On March 5th, 1955, about midnight, they landed and came up to the house. There were three men and a huge dog. One of them was a young Earth man who had gone to Venus two years before this. He was called Little Buck, or Bucky. The next man was a trainee. I was told, who was learning to operate the spaceship. The fact that he was old and wrinkled did not seem to matter. Though he was friendly and interested, he did not speak or tell his name. Then there was one fellow called Bob Solomon. I was later told he was two hundred years old, but he didn't look any older than little Bucky, who was nineteen. Last, but not least, was the big dog, Bo. He put his paw to shake hands just as the men had. When I later saw him stand on his hind legs, he was higher than my head. I also found out he weighed 385 pounds. Okay, I've got to talk about this. um, Because everyone usually gets hung up on Bo the Giant Dog, 385 pounds. And Bo the Giant Dog is pretty impressive, yeah. But what I've always found weird is that at this point, and, and actually never really addressed, but um, Buck doesn't see fit to even observe or mention that one of the people on the spaceship has basically the same name as he does. There's another Buck and he's in the spaceship. Um, It's weird. It it always struck me that he doesn't mention or register any surprise that, hey, there's another human and he's on the ship and his name's Buck too, but I'll call him Little Bucky just to differentiate. So the visit continues with some discussion about the differences and Bed linens between Earth and space. I'm not kidding. Bob Solomon almost burns his hand on an oil stove. Buck Nelson explains about what batteries are, because the visitors don't get it, because they have some sort of system where they plug their appliances into their radios for power. Again, I'm not kidding. And it wouldn't be a contactee story without some kind of commentary on religion and spirituality. They were interested in everything I had in my home and asked me about this and that. They passed up a picture of Christ and other Christian pictures on the wall. I asked them if they did not mean anything to them, and one remarked, Yeah, we understand, but you people don't. They said, We have an entire misconception of it all. When they were in the house on this visit, they told me I could go on a trip to other planets if I would tell about it to the world. They left after being with me for about an hour. The corruption by man of God's law and the complicity of organized religious systems in the negative aspects of life on earth are common themes for contactees. We saw similar ideas with both George Adamski and George Van Tassel, for example. Even Truman Bethram, when he wasn't fawning over Aura Reigns, addressed similar concerns. On the next visit, the fourth visit, the visitors mentioned to Buck that they obeyed a set of 12 laws of God that comprised the entirety of their legal code. And later, on April 24th, 1955, after being asked to change into clean clothes, Buck Nelson rode in a flying saucer. He took along his own dog, Ted, and before getting on the ship, was told to write down 12 laws of God that little Bucky, Bob Solomon, and the rest of the crew had mentioned on that previous visit. The Twelve Laws of God on Venus. These twelve laws were given to Buck Nelson at his farm at Mountain View, Missouri, on April 24, 1955, by men from the planet Venus. These laws are followed faithfully and are not just something to mention occasionally. Love. Love your maker, your parents, your neighbor, all birds and animals of the earth, and everything in the sea and air. Honor. Honor your God and parents. Obey God's law, which is also man's law. Obey. Obey God's law, your parents, and the rights of others. The Laws. 1. Love your Maker, God. 2. Thou shalt not kill, includes accidents and war. 3. Love your neighbor. 4. Let your light shine before men, and all will see your good works, and it will be an honor to you and your Maker. God. 5. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 6. Thou shalt not steal. 7. Thou must do as thou wish to be done by. 8. No other god shall be before thee. 9. Do not take the name God in vain. 10. Honor your father and mother. 11. Your body is God's. Do not misuse it in any way. Do not drink or eat anything that is not food. Use nothing to harm the body, either inside or outside. we nothing on the body that harms it, or is of no use. 12. God made the heaven and the earth, and we must give thanks for what he gives us. The people of all the other planets of our solar system are able to live in accordance with these laws without any military or police forces. Buck relates that they have no tobacco, coffee, tea, liquor, or what he calls harmful drugs because they eat, quote, unrefined natural foods. There's little disease, so there are no hospitals. There's no prisons, and life expectancy is greater than it is on Earth. So there we have it. Much like the writings of Bethram or Adamski or Van Tassel, Earth is an outlier. It's the anti-utopia. Unlike the writings of other contactees, and in Buck Nelson's book, this Dispensation of Alien Wisdom, is followed by an interlude in which the dogs, Ted of Earth and Big Bo of Venus, get baths in the spring out back of Buck's house. After the dogs are clean, Buck gets to go in the spaceship, and he even gets to fly it a little. They go to Mars, which we learn uses both solar power and electrical power. He goes to both the light and dark sides of the moon. Both sides are inhabited, but the dark side has rivers and lakes. One thing that Buck points out about space travel several times is that flying around in a flying saucer requires a great deal of food and sleep. So there's lots of little interludes where he mentions having a big meal and then a nap, because you need that in space. Oh, and I love this. Kids on the moon rode Bo the giant dog around like a pony, which may be one of the most realistic things a contactee has ever described, because it's such a normal-sounding thing. If the other denizens of the solar system are human and it's only the solar system, not solar system, the social system and culture that are different from Earth. Then we would expect to hear of kids existing and of kids acting like kids, playing with a dog. I mean, I tried to ride our dog as a horse when I was a little kid. It didn't work. Um, but uh, yeah, it seems so sort of normal. So other details. Venus has a 17-hour day and a 17-hour night, which is a 34-hour rotation period, which doesn't sound right, but I'm not the one who went to Venus, so I will relax. There are many more details of life on other planets, diet, and so forth, and in many ways, this is standard contact stuff. There's also a-, a few interesting notes here and there. Um, Buck published his account in 1956, and as we know... By that time, the flying saucer um, research community had become to develop, and conspiracy theories about the government hiding the truth about the saucers were becoming routine. Buck does address some of this in the book. The folks I talked to spoke English very well. It seems that they learned the language of the people they'll be contacting. They've told me that there are many of them among us. They have even taken some of our government officials up in their ships, but the officials are afraid to tell about it, for they have too much to lose. I have no family to suffer for what might happen to me. Well, that's nicely vague and threatening. So I'm going to leave aside Buck's information about gravity waves, space currents, and whatever, because we have a mystery to solve. When Buck first met the men from space, he mentioned Little Bucky, who was an Earth human, but hanging out with the Venusians. About halfway through my trip to Mars, the Moon, and Venus, Nelson explains Bucky's story. And just an observation here, as we as we learn from the end of the book, Buck Nelson dictated the text to Fanny Lowry, who wrote it out longhand, and then it was typeset from there. This strongly suggests to me that there wasn't a huge amount of planning going into this book. That's not to say he was writing a book in an off-the-cuff manner. He told the story at saucer meetings and and stuff. But there are some organizational and structural oddities, like not telling us about Bucky when he was introduced, but later explaining his origins after readers might have forgotten he existed. It's, It's a weird way to do it. So, who's Bucky? Bucky is a young Earth man who was born in Colorado and was taken to Venus when he was 17 years old. At the time, March 5th, that they came into the house, he had been gone about two years. I would say that he is about 21 years old now. When he was about four years old, the space people came to his parents and invited them to go to Venus. The parents did not want to go themselves, but they agreed to bring Bucky up so that he could do the work which he is now doing. The way of life of the contacted people has to be just right. Bucky teaches English on Venus. When Bucky and I got to checking up, we discovered that we were distant cousins. Bucky told me many things about my ancestors which I had never known before. Checking gave me proof that they were so. We also looked something alike, and Mrs. Lowry seemed to think that there was a slight similarity in our voices, although Bucky's is higher in pitch, and he has an accent like a person from one of the Scandinavian countries. After sharing Bucky's origin story, still with no acknowledgement that they have the same name, Nelson explains that the reason the visitors took him, Buck Nelson, on a trip to their planet is because they knew he would spread the word of their existence. This I have done to the best of my ability, he says. He then does something that that not all contactees do and talks a bit about adjusting to life on Earth after visiting other planets. Not because of our social condition, but for more practical reasons. The hardest thing I ever had to do was come back here and try to get along under the primitive conditions which we have here in these hills. This is a beautiful, heavily wooded mountain country, but water is very often a major problem. Many people, including myself, use filtered rainwater. My spring, which is the one where the spacemen got water, goes nearly dry at times. The land is rocky and hard to work, and the wood ticks seem to enjoy blood more than wood. Everything around the place and even large areas of the yard have to be sprayed to keep them down. The ticks, along with the chiggers, etc., are the reason the dogs were washed in the spring before we went on the trip. After we got on the ship, the three men and I took a bath. I don't think they would have cared much about having ticks for visitors. I'm afraid the ticks would not have returned home. Buck claimed that his first few attempts at sharing his story were not complete enough for the spaceman's liking, but as he told the story more thoroughly... They returned and and promised to give him another ride in the saucer. He explained that scientists in Chicago, after one of his speaking gigs, asked him questions about space, and that Air Force investigators visited him and examined the landscape. They bought the clothes that he wore in the saucer uh, from him. These were space overalls, and they're presumably in some sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse now. Buck related meeting the Lowrys and their help in connecting him to the saucer community, And in December of 1955, little Bucky sent a tape-recorded message for the whole world and also responded to a question from Fanny Lowry. This is a tape recording made in the home of Buck Nelson on Christmas Day, 1955. My distant cousin Bucky is here with me. Bucky will say a few words to all of you in America and all the world. The next voice you will hear will be that of Bucky from the planet Venus. Okay, Bucky.
0: Christmas and especially thank Fanny Lowry for her card. Also give her the answer to her question, yes, it has happened to our ships, torn apart for souvenirs. I appreciate such gifts and I know that the giver does not expect anything in return, as we cannot exchange gifts with this earth. Many know the reason. Buck here can tell all that ask. We'll tell you why I'm here. I've just returned from California, then on to see my folks in Colorado. Now here to see you, Buck tell the world in this tape recording that this world must give up atomic weapons and warfare. The next war, if fought, will be on American soil. America will be destroyed, then civilization all over the world will be destroyed. We are here to see which way this world will use atomic power, for peace or for war. We have stood by and seen other planets, one other, destroy itself. Is this world next? We wonder, and watch, and wait. Again I say, give up your atomic weapons on this earth. I will tell Buck much more than he can tell the world. I know that Buck will want my time here to be spent in a private, home-like way, and I also desire it that way, so must say goodbye to all the world.
1: Aha, uh-huh. there's the warning about Atomic War. I knew something missing. I'm not sure if it's the effect of being a largely sort of dictated account or a conscious choice, but as we get closer to the end of Buck's story... It seems like we're ticking off items on a to-do list. Explain the science? Check. Explain where Little Bucky comes from? Check. Explain what the government knows? Check. Did we do the atom bomb thing? No? Okay, we'll transcribe Little Bucky's Christmas letter. I think he mentioned it. What's next? What's next is weird. Just weird. And lovable. And heartfelt. And weird. Atomic War? Yeah, whatever. The real problem is how we label canned food. A couple of friends came in to see me on Christmas. They saw Bucky, but had no idea that he was anyone special. One of them even tried to sell him some insurance. Insurance policy would do him about as much good as a bicycle wheel on a flying saucer. Insurance, like so many other things we have, would be useless and undesirable on another planet. We have many things, Bucky said, which are just exactly backwards to what they should be. Our advertising often tries to make out that one product is so much better than another, when actually it may only be different in some way or another. Advertising, just like everything else, should be truthful. Labels on cans, for instance, should tell the contents first, brand names afterward. Take a can of pork and beans. It should be labeled beans and then pork. Why should a sliver of pork have first place over a whole can of beans? We could eliminate we could eliminate much useless duplication in government if our country was divided into only three or four parts instead of 48. Real estate? (laughs) My readers can figure that out. That is what the space people think about our real estate. I love this. We've passed from a contact detail into some kind of outer space-based Andy Rooney segment from an old episode of 60 Minutes, and I'm giving away sort of how old I am by referencing Andy Rooney. But um, it's... Buck just sort of slips into grumpy old man here, and it's not about atomic war or greed or injustice. It's about how can they call it pork and beans when the pork makes up such a small amount of what's in the can. Buck finishes his narrative with a rundown, oddly, a rundown of Atlantis and uh, Noah's Flood. Basically, the Atlanteans discovered atomic power, misused it, and destroyed themselves, which caused the Flood. He discusses more of his travels around the country, talking about his experiences, including on radio and television. And this passage, I think, is significant given what I, I said earlier about sort of his, his sort of resolute folksiness. Radio and TV have had me as a guest on their programs. I always wear bib overalls no matter where I am. They're what I'm used to, and I see no reason to change now. The spacemen tell me it is the best that way, also, because people can recognize me easier that way. I think it's something which will fit in with their future plans for me. Okay, this is an Ozark folksiness overload. I wear my bib overalls everywhere, and I'm not gonna wear something else just cause some city slicker tells me to. Except it's not. Buck Nelson was a pretty canny operator, and the bib overalls are part of it. He's not some hick. Now he might be some hick, but he's some hick who's got a plan. He's visually branding himself in an era where most Ozark farmers would not have thought in those terms. He attributes the ideas to the Space Brothers, but come on. He knew that there were a lot of other contactees around. He shared stages with them. What sets his story apart? What sets him apart? It's the mundane, weird details that stick out. When people think about Buck Nelson, even to this day, there's two things that usually get brought up. One is Bo, the giant dog, and the other are the picture of, is, rather, the picture of Buck Nelson in his overalls holding a sign for his space convention with the S drawn backwards. He was doing this consciously, and it's very cool, and it's very clever, and it's one of the reasons I really like Buck Nelson's story, because you get little glimpses into the importance of of marketing for these contactees in the 1950s because there was a lot of competition. It was a very crowded marketplace. And so what sets him apart? He's the overall guy. So Buck ends his story very abruptly, but again with that sort of studied folksiness. One thing I did to get ready for my trip was to secure small American flags. I left one on each planet I visited. On each flag I attached a little label with the words, Flag of the USA from planet Earth given to Venus by Buck Nelson. In the years to come, if anyone from our Earth reaches these planets, they will find the U.S. flag with my name on it. Well, Mrs. Lowry has been taken down in longhand between drapes and receiving my many visitors, opening cans and making coffee. But this tale is getting longer than the tale of the fireball I photographed in January of 1956, so I'd better quit. Fanny Lowry provided a postscript to the book with some interesting material, including a letter from Buck that she received after he got back home to Missouri from his trip to Michigan and beyond. Dear friends, I haven't been able to find that jar of liquid marked Bow Bath" anywhere. I had a good trip home, except that I was taken off the bus at rest stops, once at Toledo, and once again at Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was told what not to tell, told not to tell things which prove my story. Then, after I got home, three men in black came to the house. They told me to forget all I know about the spaceships and where they come from. I showed them my rifle and told them not to come any closer unless they wanted trouble. I'm sure the law lets me protect myself from such people. They talked between themselves and said, well, you can tell or print your story, because it is so well known anyway, but never try to prove it. So much of what the three men in black said to me would be hard to tell, let alone write. So much of it didn't make sense. Anyway, I don't scare easy. I don't think I'll be bothered again, and I don't think they will bother you for helping with this work. You can write this for print if you feel or dare. I cooperate with government agencies when they come to see me. I do so in all ways when they let me know who they are. I'm glad I'm an American and do my best to cooperate. I don't know who these men were. Your friend, Buck. This is really cutting-edge stuff. This book was published in 1956. That's the same year that Gray Barker's book They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers came out. And since Buck had already been telling his tale, the Three Men in Black, the okay, fine, just don't prove any of it angle was a great way for Buck and Fanny uh, as his as sort of probably editor in many ways, a great way for them to fold in this new facet of the mythology and increase his credibility and connect to something that was rapidly becoming very popular. So after the publication of the book... Buck Nelson promoted a spacecraft convention on his property, which um, at the end of the book, there's a a sort of, you know, announcement for this. And it it mentions, you know, that there will be UFOs or flying saucer speakers, but also, you know, details about the camping, details about the food. There's going to be fried chicken and sandwiches. Um, There's also a call for speakers, a call for UFO musicians, pony rides, harness racing. It, It sounds like it was a circus in the best possible way. And at the end of the book, there's also little announcements. He wants people who are interested in a flying saucer club and also offered that anybody who read his book could camp on his property at any time for free, which is very generous. Um, He includes a map to his uh, his ranch near Mountain View, Missouri. And thanks to this map, I think I figured out where it is and uh, I should show up with a copy of the book and demand that whoever owns it now let me camp there because I read Buck Nelson's book. He would also sell people UFO books and, quote, tape recordings of good gospel music. And there we have it, the Ozark Adamski, the Mark Twain National Forest Van Tassel. There's a calculated entrepreneurialism to Nelson's approach that's very fun. The Spacecraft Convention, as he called it, ran for about a decade, uh, and Nelson himself died in 1982. But like George Adamski, Buck Nelson would have some kind of an afterlife. In 2010... A self-styled, quote, Swedish teacher of wisdom and also, quote, a spiritual life philosopher and free thinker calling himself Hermes Atar Trimagistus published some letters on his website from a guy named Hank Folk with startling revelations about Buck Nelson's claims as part of a page summarizing Nelson's story. And I had a bit of trouble finding out anything about Hank Falk. He seems to have spent most of the last 20 years running various websites that combine news from his town of Atchison, Kansas, with vaguely conspiratorial political commentary, such as, quote, terrorism and the Illuminati, a 3,000-year history. There are also a large number of what, back in my day, we called get-rich-quick schemes. They're convincing plans. Uh, Through the magic of the Wayback Machine at archive.org, I clicked on the laid-off to paid-off link and was greeted with a flashing graphic that showed a stack of $100 bills. Put away your money while I show you how to make $100 to $200 plus per day online. Go ahead, I dare you. Just try to come up with an excuse for not making fast cash with this. Click here. Watch free video, 20 bucks a pop. Since nearly every link on the page is dead, I didn't click, but I'm wondering if this could be some viable way to generate some quick income. If not, there's always this. Need extra income? Free system stuffs your PayPal with $20 cash payments. You won't pay a dime for this. Your customers won't pay either. And yet, you still get $20 payments stuffed in your PayPal or mailbox. Here's how this new secret system works for you like crazy. Click the banner. Talk soon. Hank. All very sensible, and I'm expecting my PayPal account to be stuffed any day now. Okay, enough, enough, silly, enough silliness. I will stop. In general, Hank Falk presented his websites as hubs for the Atchison, Kansas community with links to weather, local news, and of course, ways to get rich. He made a reference on one page that we're gonna hear to Townsfolk forcing him to remove his previous Atchison sites, presumably because they made Atchison, Kansas, look like some sort of pyramid scheme in municipal form. In his current Twitter bio, he asserts that he is, quote, rewriting history from the land of Atlantis with Queen Suzalana, Quantenautalis, 1954 UFO sighting, and more. I have no idea what any of that means. The website linked in the profile is very strange, and it seems to revolve around what appears to be stock photos of a young woman, who I assume to be, or probably just represent, Queen Susalana Quantinatalis. It's hard to say. So we've gone down the Hank Falk rabbit hole, and I hope I haven't poisoned the well in doing so, but I wanted to give you some idea of the quality of this source as we get to the information he shared about Buck Nelson. Hello Hermes Atar Tribemagistus. I live in Atchison, Kansas, where much of the local tourist business comes from the Amelia Earhart annual celebration. General C. E. LeMay was a friend of both Buck Nelson and Amelia until their deaths. To keep the locals off my back, I've removed the website which contained information on both. Mainly, it made locals mad because of documents we own which blow the common stories away. On the Sunday in June 1954, when Bucky Nelson flew his saucer in front of over a thousand witnesses, LeMay was there in person. Colonel Gray of Project Blue Book was with him, and rode in the saucer accompanied by the Springfield News and Leader reporter Frank Farmer. Buck Nelson got to meet President Eisenhower on an arranged trip to D.C. The President's doctors learned how to do open-heart surgery from Buck Nelson. They were able to save Eisenhower's life when he had his first heart attack. This was information given to Buck by the visitors. Many in Washington, D.C. wanted Buck killed, but the general was a friend that stood by, old Buck. He was hot as Area 51. Bo the dog was analyzed, photographed, and x-rayed by students from the University of Missouri School of Veterinary Medicine in 1953. Results showed his hair to be unlike standard dog hair. Internal organs were also somewhat different. He was said to look much like a giant sheepdog. General LeMay directed the B-29 campaigns of World War II in the Pacific. In 1945, he arranged for Amelia to come back to the USA to live until her death over 20 years or so later. A mutual friend bought a restored 1918 World War I flying ace trainer biplane from her in 1960. The plane was sold to the Smithsonian collection since it was serial number one. Much of my documented facts blows common opinion out of the water, just as the general loved to do throughout his life. If you and your colleagues want some good information, find a copy of Project Blue Book by Colonel Gray, published in 1957, one year after his official closed-casket funeral held by the U.S. Air Force at Wright-Patterson. Gray was flying experimental aircraft coming on radar at Mach 7 and landing in Hawaii in the 70s. His reaction time was said to be very quick, almost unhumanly so. My interests have turned in other directions. Common people are not able to earn enough to survive until retirement. Interest is so low that it takes over $80,000 to earn $100 a month. We've developed a little helper to provide anyone who wants more time and money with unlimited income. Security and privacy are very valuable issues. Our members appreciate our services. Respectfully, Hank Falk. Wow. As I listen to that again, I am in awe, both of the strangeness and of the odd factual errors. One example, calling little Bucky, Bucky Nelson, which he was never called in the book. Also, we see Big Bo's hair getting analyzed at least a year before Buck Nelson ever met the dog. Although, Hank Falk might be covering this with his claim that the version of the book that was published was one with fake dates to throw off researchers. That would probably explain that discrepancy. Of course, this also contradicts Jim Mosley's account in his autobiography of someone complaining to Buck Nelson that the bow hair he was selling at his convention was just normal dog hair. Buck replied something along the lines of, why wouldn't it be? A dog's a dog, which which is great. As for a Colonel Gordon Gray running Blue Book, I've not seen that anywhere. There was a Gordon Gray active in aviation circles in the 1950s, but it was a lieutenant, not a Colonel Gordon Gray. And he was in the Navy, not the Air Force. And he was a decorated test pilot who retired in 1970. If any of you have information on this supposed Colonel Gray of Project Blue Book, uh, hit me up on Twitter at uh, Saucer Life, because I'm not finding anything, and I think it's all made up. So in 2017, someone named Lucas Luitz, um, produced a revised edition of My Trip to Mars, the Moon, and Venus. And this revision was, um, it also changed the title of the book to My Trip to Mars, the Moon, and Planet A. WT heck is going on here. Um, this is dumb. But we're going to give Lucas a chance to explain why he did this. This is the revised edition of Buck Nelson's booklet, My Trip to Mars, the Moon, and Venus. Notice the word Venus in the title has been replaced by the planet A. Why planet A? The A stands for anonymous. Why replace the word Venus? The reason, as you will soon see, is the problem all the Galactic Federation contactees had when recounting their stories. The contactees often said they visited Venus, or claimed the space friends came from Venus. This was actually memory manipulation by enemy groups of the Confederation against the Confederation contactees, In order to discredit them, because obviously there is no life on Venus. So, if changing Venus to planet A was the entirety of the revision of the book, I would be a little amused and just a little annoyed. But the revisions go beyond that, however. And they start at the very beginning. And there's a problem. Remember this paragraph? The first part of my story started on July 30th, 1954. I was listening to my radio at my home at 4 o'clock in the afternoon when it began to go crazy wild. My dog, too, sat up and started barking, and my pony outside began to raise all kinds of noise. I went outside to see what the animals were doing. Hey, you're saying to yourself, why did I hear the first paragraph of Buck's book again? Because you didn't hear it. You heard the revised version. Did you catch it? In this version, Buck's pony was raising all kinds of, quote, noise not Cain. And that change bothers me. I don't care very much about bringing in some cosmic federation or retconning Venus out of the story. That's par for the saucer course. But to strip out a folksy colloquialism and make the passage far more bland is crossing a line. On top of that, Lucas claims that this is a more accurate edition of the text. How is this more accurate when the only purpose of this particular change is to strip out the voice of the author? That bothers me a lot. Equally annoying is the introduction of a number of typos. Uh, Lucas has, since 2017, edited or annotated a number of other classic contact ebooks, and he, he sort of shoehorns them all into his own vision of a galactic federation. Regardless of edits and annotations and strange websites about the Queen of Atlantis, Buck Nelson lives on as the innovator of both Big Bo and Little Bucky, for bringing contact and conferences to the interior of the U.S. in a big way, and most of all, for those bib overalls, at once folksy and calculated, a shrewd sartorial choice from a man who set out to construct his own saucer life. Next time, we head to South America. That's all you're getting. There are some links to material mentioned in this week's episode in the show notes, particularly a scan of Buck Nelson's book. I'm not going to give you a link to the revised version because I don't think I should publicize it beyond just mentioning its existence. I don't like it. I dislike it enough to not tell you where to find it. You can find it if you want, though. You can explore that stuff as well as the archives at saucerlife.com. And you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. Ratings and reviews are appreciated and thank you for those who've reviewed the show so far and said such nice things about us and emailed me links to interesting, cool information. I really appreciate it. The Saucer Life, Encounter 601, was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Until next time, keep watching the skies, because Big Bo and Little Bucky are watching you.